we are going to be in James 4, 1 through 6. We're going to add those verses 5 and 6 on at the end after we see where we get to in 4. This, uh, this sermon this week is going to be a little different. Um, normally, I would start with some sort of illustration or some kind of hook story or something like that. Um, but I really want to just get to the main point because throughout this, this week, the Lord has really worked on me with this passage. And so the illustration for this passage this week is going to be me. Sorry. Um, so we'll start with the big idea, and then I'll explain to you um, my story and how it relates to this passage. So the big idea, and it's a long one, because I, I just couldn't remove any words, because the words were just, they all needed to be there. The genuine Christian knows that when things don't go the way they want, or they are tempted to jump back in bed with the world, that they have a faithfully jealous husband who extends grace to bring them back to him. A genuine Christian. Remember, we've been talking about what does it mean to be a genuine believer? What does it mean to be the real thing? And so in this passage today, it's dealing with our desires, the things that we want, our preferences. It's also dealing with this, this desire to go back to an old, uh, an old lover in our world and then what Jesus, what God's response is as that faithful and jealous husband and how he gets us back with his grace. So this passage is, is very meaningful to me because I am that man. I am the one who was quarreling and fighting. I had a quarrel and a fight that was birthed solely out of my desire to have what I wanted. And because of it, I had bitterness in my heart and I had, I had this, this just nasty, gross response to people that were serving the Lord. And ultimately, I sinned. And so this, this sinning against my Lord and my fellow believers is what the Lord convicted me of this week. And so I want to take you guys through my story and what the Lord did. So we'll hit our first point. And really what James does is he gives us two reasons why we, why we have fighting. And then he tells us the diagnosis, which is you adulterous people. And then he tells us the cure. And he gets those all put together. So the first reason that we are ready to fight and quarrel is because our desires are denied. Our desires are denied. Now, when you see that word desire, some translations say pleasures. And then we also see the word passions. We see those words, pleasure, denial, desire, and passion. In our culture, those are usually related to something sexual, uh, something eros-related, right? We, we don't see those as something that are just natural, something that you talk about on a regular basis. And so I feel like we get a little lost here in that this is not talking about sex. This is not talking about any sort of intimacy like that. This is talking about any time I have something that I want, and I want it really bad. So think more along the lines of preference, or taste, or wants, or wishes, right? So when I go to the, the restaurant, and I go through the drive-thru, my desire is to have my order match the order that they give me. So that would be the desire, okay? And we all can think of the times when we say the order and we think we're speaking really clear and then what we get, we go, wow, that was nowhere near what I wanted. 
So that's what this is talking about. It's saying our desire, what our preference is, is what the problem is when that gets denied. So let me tell you a little bit of my story. 1999, I was on a spring break track trip to Santa Barbara. You know, the George Fox track team, we were smart. We knew that doing track in February in Oregon is a bad idea. And so we went to Southern California and we were in Santa Barbara. Literally the track is separated by a two-lane Highway 101, and then there's the beach. So, I mean, is that not like the place you want to be doing track and field? Beautiful weather, you throw the javelin, I throw the javelin, then I go play on the beach. So, hanging out down there, and I was asked to lead a Bible study in um, our track's devotional every day, track team's devotional. So, we're, we're staying at a church, I grab a Bible, I go find a quiet place, and I begin studying, and I dig into the Word, and I went, oh, this is awesome. And I heard the Lord say, maybe not actually literally out loud, but it was pretty darn close, you're going to be doing this. I'm glad you like it. And so I spent the last few years being different types of Bible teachers. I felt because of that, in 2000, I started seminary, so I felt I had to go to seminary. And at the time, I went to a church in Gresham, out on the other side of Gresham by Mount Hood Community College. And as I was there, I was in charge of the collegiate ministry, being at, you know, just post-college, and we didn't have much of a college. It was a college in singles is what they called it. Um, we didn't have a college in married, but we just had a college in singles. And we hung out, and we, we did that. And that fall of 2000, a man moved here from somewhere in the south. I think it was Louisiana, Texas. I don't remember. His name was Pastor Mike. And he moved here, and he wanted to start a worship gathering for college-age students. Now, if you can remember back in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was, a, there was a, a ministry movement that was all over the place. It was called Passion. Anybody remember that? The Passion Conferences with Louis Giglio, and they were these big, huge get-togethers. They did one out in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky, and it had something like 75,000 college students come and worship for eight hours in one day. It was amazing. So we wanted to do something like that here, because, you know, Oregon's a dark part of the country, not a lot of believers here. So we thought, what better way to do this? Let's get a revival going. So we started planning. Pastor Mike, me, and a few other ministry leaders, we started planning, and we came up with a worship gathering called The River. The River. Um, Officially, it was The River Worship Gathering. We just called it The River. See, I had in my mind that we could replicate passion. The music was great. The preaching was great. And all we got to do is do it this way, and we would have this humongous ministry, right? And I was very set, because you know what? My church didn't do worship the way I wanted. My, my, my friends' churches didn't do worship the way they wanted. We wanted to do it our way. We wanted to have it be a certain way. And we wanted passionate preaching, just like Louis Giglio. And we wanted to have Bible studies. And we wanted it to spread to the college campuses. Well, me, in my infinite wisdom as a first quarter seminarian, I knew that I couldn't be the preacher. I wasn't prepared. I hadn't taken a class on it yet. That's what I thought made you a good preacher. But I definitely felt like I wanted to be involved in the decision-making. So I tried out for the worship team. Now, there's a reason why you all didn't hire me as your worship pastor. And that's because I, I did do music as a kid. I did do piano for a while. I played the trombone. I couldn't do it now if, you, if I tried. I did one year of college choir, so clearly I would have been the best choice for worship theater, right? Well, that's what I thought, because I had all these ideas of this is what good worship is. 
and I wanted to be involved. So I tried out, which was a train wreck. Thankfully, there were no cell phones videotaping it. And there were, you know, it was like American Idol. It was bad. And so I sat up there and I was like, oh, I should be the worship leader and I have all these great ideas and my style and my way, it's going to be awesome. Well, lo and behold, no surprise, no shock, Pastor Mike and the committee they had together went with someone else. And I was like, okay, that's fine. You know what? Just, but, you know, I, I should be doing something else. I couldn't play anything. They didn't have a kazoo on the team. They didn't have, you know, somebody who sits there and sort of shakes a, a tambourine off beat. So I didn't have a really have a position. So I just was like, all right, I guess, Lord, I'm just going to attend. No big deal. I'll just attend as one of the leaders, one of the people that's, that's there. And I didn't think I had any sort of a grudge or any sort of sour grapes or bitterness. So I attended for a few short weeks. And lo and behold, a few weeks into this, I started noticing, ah, this worship leader, she's not very good. She's screechy. She, she sings these songs weird. And they keep choosing songs that I've never heard of and I don't like. And I kept going, man, th this, this is not very good. And so, I mean, seriously, I, I, I could do any better, but I couldn't. But yet what happened was over time, because I had this desire that I wanted, it didn't just stay as a desire, you know, a critique of what was going on up there. It began infiltrating my heart and my heart started going the wrong direction. And what happened was worship now started becoming about what I wanted. And when that person up there leading wasn't doing it the way I wanted, I started getting upset and I missed out on some phenomenal worship. And see, the thing about it is, it didn't just stay there. And that's the way sin is, right? When, when you allow something that starts with a simple, innocent, I don't like the style, and it turned to, now I'm getting upset about it, it didn't stop there, it spread. And before you know it, I started having a bad attitude, not when the worship band was singing, but when Pastor Mike was preaching. You see, Pastor Mike was the one who decided that I couldn't be the worship leader. It was a great decision. He was right on. But yet, I started having that bitterness, and it spread. So that I'm sitting there. Pastor Mike is a phenomenal preacher. This guy has preached all over the place. I would say almost every continent. He's a phenomenal preacher. And he's humble, and he's not about himself. And yet, I sat there and went, I wouldn't use that analogy. Man, he's talking so long. You know, he never has voice inflection. What does he know? And so, first-year student in seminary knows more than somebody who's been a pastor for years. See, at the start of, this, start of my story, you see here, is that my, my desires went from a simple critique into now they're thwarted, and now I'm starting to fight. I was fighting. It was an internal fight. Nobody saw it but me. Nobody knew what was going on, but it was a fight within me. See, our desires and our wants being frustrated, thwarted, or denied, we always say someone else is responsible. Look at verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There's all these debates about whether verse 2, that first part, actually was people really being murdered inside of churches. And I think that misses the point. You know, Jesus said that if you say certain things about your brother, that it's the same as murdering. And, and even if this was an actual murder, and James has in his mind, I remember when Joe Bob was killed by this guy in a church service. If that's true, well, that's terrible. But even if it's not, it still applies right here to us, right? And so ultimately... 
what we see here is that this is all about war imagery and fighting and things like that. So this rhetorical question with James answering, this rhetorical question with James answering, hey, Katie Nicholson, could you go um, tell her that that door is not open for the bathroom? Sorry, I opened those over there. Thank you. Katie's a good assistant. Nice job, Katie. So this is military imagery, right? So when it says quarrels, that means fighting. When we see this, these, the word fight means strife to fisticuffs. It means to the point of punching. So this is, this is fights. And notice where it says it is. It says among you. Throughout this book, when we see you, it's always brothers, brothers, brothers. This is talking about the church. So conflict among you. Do you not see that it's your passions at war within you? That means within who you are. This word passion is the word hedon, where we get the word hedonism from. But it's not just, like I said before, it's not just lust and sexual desires, which is what we think of with hedonism. It is full desires for what I want right now. It is a form of narcissism and self-love that all it does is produce dissension because if I'm worrying about what I want and this person's worrying about what they want, neither will the two meet, but they will bump up against each other. And that's the passions that we see here. The war is within you and it causes war outside of you. But see, doesn't our world do this? They, they like to blame anybody but themselves, right? You know, if, if only my parents had hugged me more. My parents had spanked me less. You know, if that politician was just a Republican, that politician was just a Democrat, if that politician was less of a politician. Oh, it's my schooling. My school didn't have a STEM program. My school did. I don't even know what a STEM program is. Oh, but you know, my parents were both short, so that's why I can't play basketball. No, my parents were both tall, so that's why I can't be short. All right. What, what, what is the, we always find something to blame. It's always someone else's fault. But James, with his penetrating insight, says, no, no, no. You don't get to blame anybody else for your problems. The problems are in you. The problem is inside of you. This is a powerful analysis of all human conflicts, isn't it? Verbal arguments, violence, national conflict comes from things we want that we have been denied. And so therefore we fight about it. All of it can be tied to that. These, these smoldering state of hostility inside of us flares up and it leads to the fights. So why are we angry? Why do we wish others ill will? Because our desires are being denied. We want something, but we aren't getting it, so we attack those in the way. So the second reason why we find ourselves with fights and quarrels, it's because we've stopped trusting God that he is going to be good to us. So we've stopped trusting God, that God has a plan, and instead, we have a plan, and our plan is what matters. See, that's where I was, right? I'm over here, and I'm going, this worship gathering is garbage. You guys are doing it the wrong way. Now, over here, at the worship gathering, we have people coming to know the Lord. We have people worshiping. We have this amazing thing. Yeah, granted, it didn't last forever, and it wasn't this world-shattering, amazing revival, but for a time, it was powerful. But yet, over here, I'm going, that's not the way I would do that. That must mean it's wrong. So I'm saying, what I want is right. What God wants is wrong. How ridiculous is that? So I attacked it. And this came from me not trusting the Lord. So not because I didn't go, 
But a few months later, about six months later, the river decided it wasn't working to do these big gatherings, and so they kind of disbanded it and did some smaller stuff, and then eventually it just kind of petered out. During this time, I sat in the worship, and I belittled the worshipers, the worship leaders, who all they were trying to do was glorify God. In my head, I kept saying, that's terrible. No, it's this. I missed out on this great preacher because you know what? I wouldn't even open my Bible because you know what? He's just going to do it a way that's annoying to me. He's just going to do it a way I didn't like. He's going to talk for too long. He's going to be too loud. You know what? He's going to use too much of this or that. And all this time, I missed out. So what did I feel when the river stopped meeting? I felt vindicated. I was like, see, told you so. Told you that was garbage. See, yep, no one else thought it was good either. So I'm telling God, God, your plan over here that went exactly how you planned it, you, your plan was wrong. I was right. See, Lord? See, now during this time, I had been praying. You know what I was praying? Lord, change the worship. Lord, change the preacher. Lord, let them see the error of their ways and come to me and ask me to lead it. Use my input. Never once did I go, hey, Lord, where is my heart in this? Is my heart in the right? Instead, it was, Lord, do what I want. Never once did I ask him to check my heart. Never once did I go, you know what, Lord, my heart might not be in the right on this. Would you please fix it? I claimed I loved this God, but instead of loving what he was doing over here, I was trying to use him as my own personal waiter, my own personal butler. Lord, I really could use some new pillows. Bring me some new pillows over here and make it more comfortable for me. Instead of, Lord, I want to be where you're at. I want to be what you're doing. See, I loved God, but I only loved God in the way that I wanted him to be. I wanted it this way. God, I will love you, but I have to be over here, and you have to come over here where I'm at. Not, God, I'll go wherever you want. I would say that. Oh, yeah, I'll go be a missionary in Timbuktu. I'll do it but I wouldn't even go to the worship gathering where God's being glorified, the same God that I claim to love. How ridiculous was I? I'm sorry. You guys are stuck with me as your pastor. What God wanted was he wanted my submission and my worship because worship and submission go hand in hand. When you are worshiping God, worship is not just what we do when we sing. Worship is what we do with our lives. And so all of life is worship and all of life is submission. See, what he wanted was he wanted me to say, I don't care how wrong the worship is. I don't care how boring the preacher is. I don't care that this worship gathering on a weeknight that's starting at seven o'clock doesn't get done till almost 10 and I have a seven o'clock class the next day. I don't care. I'm here to worship Jesus. That's what he wanted from me. But instead, I wanted it my way. Jesus, meet me on my terms or it doesn't count. What a waste. See, when we don't believe that God is good at planning for our life and that he's got something good for us, we start praying wrongly. And this is what we see in verse two. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Why do you ask wrongly? To spend it on your passions. I get it. It's hard to say, Lord, check my heart. Where's my heart on this? Because what's he going to say? Probably, no, your heart's in the wrong, right? I, I've learned to not ask my wife that question. 
Because I know she'll tell me, yeah, yeah, your heart's in the wrong, John. Sometimes she tells me even without asking, praise the Lord. But that's the way it should be, right? We should be able to ask the Lord, Lord, I want to be where you're at. I say that I love you and I want to be where you're at. That means if you're over here and I'm over here, Lord, pull me over. Get me where you're at. And that submission, that it, ultimately it's an incorrect view of God if I'm not willing to submit. You do not have because you do not ask. We're forgetting grace. When we, when we stop praying to be in line with God's will, it's a sign that we're trying to run things in our own strength. Prayer is not getting God to do what we want. It's about lining ourselves up with him. J.I. Packer says, every time we pray, we confess our impotence and God's omnipotence. We're saying, I can't do it. See this, we, we go to God and we say, hey, God, you know, you're a good divine waiter. You know, I want you to deliver to me my daydream. This is the thing I want. You know what? I'll touch base with you every Sunday. I may even leave you a nice tip in the, in the offering plate. But ultimately, you give me what I want or I'm going to be furious at you. And that's what I was doing. I was living this life where I thought I, my way was what mattered and what God wanted didn't matter. And what had started as a simple critique and a disagreement became this humongous thing that led me to miss out on what the Lord was doing. I love this. One author writes, if we are living lives in which God does not have our highest allegiance, then we will use prayer instrumentally, selfishly, simply to get the things that are already ruining our lives. If he loves us, he will not fund our adulterous romances. I love that. I love that that, that's the way God is. He wants our full attention. And we may be over here going, I want my way, God. And God's over here going, if I give you your way, you're going to run even farther from me into the adulterous lap of something other than me. No, I'm not giving you your way. So this is where James takes us. And the third thing we see is the result of our desires being denied and our not trusting God We jump back into bed with the world and become an enemy of God. We jump back into the world, into bed with the world and become an enemy of God. See, those desires that I had inside and that lack of trust in that God was doing something that didn't match up with my plans is like gangrene. It's inside you and it's insidious and it keeps growing. It didn't stop there. Before the worship gathering, the river worship gathering stopped I was still doing collegiate ministry at my church. And as I was doing it, every week we would meet on Saturday nights and we'd come together and we'd study. And I'd say, hey guys, don't forget, we've got this meeting on campus on this day. We've got the river on Tuesday and we've got church next week. See you all there. And I would do that every week. But as my frustration grew for this worship not being the way I wanted it, this preaching not being the way I wanted it, this gathering being opposite of my dreams, you know what I stopped, stopped doing? Stopped talking about it. Stopped promoting it. I'd say, oh yeah, we got Bible study and I'll see you next week. Stop talking about it all together. I was on the planning committee. I was on one of the leadership committees. And because it wasn't the way I wanted it, I stopped doing it. Now, this quarreling and fighting is very much, it's, it's fisticuffs, it's fighting, punching people out. I never did that. So is this verse not applying to me? Wrong It does apply to me because there are backhanded and insidious ways to fight. 
you don't know this, try to remember back to junior high, right? Where people would say things about you, they'd never say it to your face, and they would attack you behind your back. They would, they would sow discord. And that's what I was doing. I was not fighting aggressively. I never went to Mike and said, you're terrible. I never went to the worship team and said, you guys are awful, quit. But instead, I used the power that I had to tell the people around me, yeah, don't go. I didn't say it like that. I just stopped mentioning it. I stopped going. I stopped bringing it up. See, I'm leading a college group to fall more in love with the God that I am saying, don't go over here to the thing that God is doing. Whose work was I doing at that point? Remember last week? I was doing the demons work. Because what do the demons want? They want discord and disunity. They want to separate the church. That's all they can do. They can't touch you if you're in Christ. But they can try to separate and they can try to divide. I was literally doing that right here. I jumped back in with the world's way. Because the world's way says, someone wrongs me, hurt them. Someone wrongs me, break off relationship. Someone cheats on you, divorce. That's the world's mindset all the way across. And that's what I was doing here. And I was doing it so insidiously and passive aggressively. Now I'd love to say that I left that back there all nearly 20 years ago. But five years ago, as I was planning for chapels at the high school I taught at, someone approached me and said, hey, let's get Pastor Mike. He's this great speaker, let's have him come. And of course, you know, I probably should have probably said, great, let's have him come in. But that bitterness and that frustration and that, that, that my desires still welled up. And I went, no, he's terrible. Man, he's, he talks too long. He's, he's just awful. We're not going to have him. And I missed out on what he could have done with our school. I missed out on what he could have done in me because I still had that desire that was not being met. Wow, your pastor's a sinner. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people. This is supposed to hit with that exclamation point at the end. Because this is the first time James does not refer to them as brothers. So he's been saying, brothers, brothers, brothers. You are adulterers. You are in bed with the world. This is the diagnosis of their problem. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? That means hostility with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Philip's translation says, you are like unfaithful wives flirting with the glamour of this world, never realizing that to be the world's lover means becoming an enemy of God. See, James is saying our selfish desires lead to all of our problems with others, but more importantly, lead to our problem with God. And James uses two types of language here. He uses the language of love and the language of politics. Language of love, he says, God, you're not adequate. I do not feel like you're going to meet my needs, so I'm going to be an adulterer and go meet it somewhere else. You aren't satisfying me. I'm going elsewhere for my satisfaction. This is spiritual infidelity. In the Old Testament, this was what idol worship was called. Whenever Israel decided to go to idols, it was called adultery. Worship the creation rather than the creator. And then we see the language of politics right there where it says become enemies of God. That word enemy means to go back to an old alliance. So I was over here in the world doing things with the world and then Christ pulled me out. And I'm all the way over here and I'm going, well, you know, they got some good stuff over there. I'm going to go back over here. This 
way of handling this problem. Instead of taking it to the Lord in prayer, Lord, change my heart. Lord, fix my heart. I was praying, Lord, get them out of the way so I can have my way. Oh yeah, and they're not out of my way? Fine, I'm not gonna support them. I'm gonna divorce. I'm gonna split. I'm gonna revenge. This spiritual treason, I adopted the world's way, the culture's way of responding to my desires not being met. Outwardly associating with the church, but inside in love with the world's way of dealing with things. Now people will see this and they'll go, wait a second, how are we supposed to evangelize if we're not allowed to be friends with the world? What is James even meaning here? This doesn't seem to flow. But we need to understand in antiquity, it was way different when you said the word friend. I mean, just think about how different it is today versus 15, 20 years ago. I friended someone online. You'd be like, oh my gosh, that's scary. Are you serious? Ah, creepers online. But now friending online means you pushed a button. We're best friends. We're online official. We're Facebook friends. That doesn't mean anything, right? So it's this kind of loose, eh. but back in the day, what this meant was, I am aligning myself with you. It's a love relationship, a friendly, phileo love relationship. So this is more so than just an emotional attachment. It's more so than just saying, oh, I kind of like you. It's saying, I identify with you. Being a friend of the world is to be more committed to the world than God and aligning yourself with him because there's no spiritually neutral An author in uh, England wrote this. He said, when Christians adopt this mindset, they are figuratively climbing back into bed with the world. It's not friendship with people in the world that's wrong, but friendship that values the world. And God takes it personal. Just like a husband who finds his wife back in bed with the thug she had been dating before he had come into her life and rescued her from that awful relationship, such a husband would have every right to be angry. And James is clear that being unfaithful to God provokes his enmity, his hostility. So the enemy that God's son died to free you from, you go right back to, you flirt with. Oh, even worse, you are intimate with. What an affront to the God of the universe. And see, this is where Michael left us off in our passage. And that's where the the pastors wanted to stop. Okay, have a good Sunday. See ya. Is that, the new, is that it? The bad news? No, there's more to it than that. And that's where verses 5 and 6 come in. And 5 and 6 say, in spite of how awful we are, we are adulterers. We are treasonous. Yet God jealously loves us and extends his grace to us anyways. I love that. I love that he says, you know what? There's a problem between you and I. Now, in the world, if the person over here is cheating, that person has to repent and come back. But instead, God goes, there's a problem. You're cheating. Here, let me give you more grace. And I will pull you back. See, God does it. It's amazing. So I felt this way for 20 years. If you'd asked me last Sunday what this passage meant to me, it meant something totally different. I had done a preliminary study last week, the week before last, and on Sunday I kind of had an idea where I was going to this. And then Monday morning, as I'm studying this passage, the Lord wallops me upside the head, and he says, you did this. I had not thought of the river or Pastor Mike in years. And he broke me over this passage this week broke me. So yeah, Monday afternoon, 
I sat down and had to write some very painful letters, including one to my best friend who just so happens to be married to my sister. But I also wrote one to Pastor Mike. Didn't have Mike's phone number. I probably should have called, but besides being a sinner, I'm also a coward, and I didn't want to talk to him. But I wrote him a letter, and I asked him for forgiveness. And I, I told him I was sorrowful for missing out. My sin made me miss out on what God was doing. Didn't bother them because they didn't see it. It was me. See, when our desires run us, the problem is not them. The problem is me. We are the problem. We are the friend with the world. We are the ones that believe the world's lies, that you can have it your own way, that if it's not the way I want it, go somewhere else. Don't we see that in the churches in America today? Well, this church doesn't have the way I want it, so I'm going to go over here. That doesn't have it, I'm going to go over there. We see that everywhere. We see that in families. We see that in marriages. We see that in church. We see that everywhere. And right here, this is what I did. The world believes the lie that if something's hard, you should avoid it. So I jumped into the bed with the world, and I did it 20 years ago. So I wrote him this letter. I said, hey, Mike. Random note here, uh, I'm working as a pastor in Gladstone now, and this week, as I was working on my sermon, the Lord had convicted me of my attitude and actions back when we started the river. I was selfish, and I was petty, and I was super immature. I never gave the river my all, nor did I give it my full support. As a ministry leader, I should have. As a fellow disciple of Christ, I should have, but I did not. So I would like to ask your forgiveness for how I did not invest in that awesome ministry opportunity. It was absolutely nothing you did. It was all on me and my immaturity and my sinful childish heart. I don't know if you knew it, but I did not buy in like I should. Now, I'm sorry if today this hurts you as you hear this, but I just wanted you to know I was sorry, and I hope that you will forgive me for not doing better. I pray that your family and you are doing well. God bless. See, he never knew that I felt that way. My brother-in-law and sister didn't know that I felt that way, and they both were incredibly forgiving right off the bat. See, I praise God that I never verbalized it. I had a lot of power with that college group. I could have spent days and days and days talking about how bad the worship was. I could have also gone to the worship, and I could have done things to ruin it by being there. But look how great God is. And this is the God that I was committing adultery on. Because where was I when all of this was happening? I was in seminary. Now, in my life, I can see two places in my life where I had the most growth in my life. One was when I started a ministry opportunity with a few fellows about 10 years ago, and the other one was in seminary. During this time, I am in bed with the enemy. I am doing the demon's work. But yet over here, the Lord is so merciful, and he was growing me in spite of me. I was praying, I was reading my Bible, I was studying in seminary, I was doing ministry, and the Lord was good. He did a lot. Now, I look at it now and I go, wow, he did a lot, but he could have done even more. But because of my sin, I was in the way. Because I was sleeping in, I was in bed with the world when I could have been right over here with my bridegroom. So praise the Lord that that's the God we have, that even when we are wrong and we are false and we are nasty, he is good. So my brother-in-law said, I told him, I said, I, I, wrote, I wrote a letter to Mike. And he goes, oh, man, he's going to get back to you, and it's going to be awesome. I know him. I know his heart. He's going to forgive you like that. I'm like, well, I hope so. Because what I did was pretty bad. 
And wouldn't you know it, a few minutes later, instead of putting it off for later on his phone, he had messaged me back, and this is what he wrote. John, I want to affirm your actions and obedience to God in seeking forgiveness. I am not hurt or offended in any way. I respect you for humbling yourself and seeking forgiveness. God will honor that. I forgive you. Be released of the burden. I have had no hard feelings towards you. I am glad to hear that you <clears throat> excuse me, are pastoring. This is a difficult season to lead, and I pray that the Lord will guide and provide for the church you are pastoring. If I can help or encourage or partner with you, please let me know. So I'm looking at this on my phone when I'm at a stoplight. Not a good idea. But I saw that he messaged me back, so I'm reading this, and I get to that line, be released of your burden, and I had to put the phone down because I couldn't see because I was sobbing. Be released. I didn't even know I had this burden. Last Sunday, you'd have come to me and you'd have said, you have this burden. I'd have been like, yeah, go jump in a lake. I don't see it. But yet, when I read those words and I got into the Lowe's parking lot and I turned the car off and read the rest of the message, I was flying. It was like I was weightless. The Lord had taken that burden off of me that I didn't even know I had. You see, the Lord's word is a scalpel. And he went in there and he cut the strings to this burden that had been weighing me down. And he showed me what his mercy and his grace looks like through the man of Pastor Mike. Because what he did by saying, I forgive you, is what God does for us. It's the burden he wants all of us to feel released off of us. And doggone it, I'm not an old man. My kids will disagree with you. They'll say I'm an old man. But if I have a two-decade-old sin that God can forgive and heal like that, there is nobody in this room who God cannot heal a sin in your life. If he brings a burden up to you, release it, confess it, repent of it, and fly. He wants to do that. Why? Because he is good. He is a jealous lover who wants you back and your sin is what's in the way look at verse 5 do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us that word yearns is the word desire it means he desires us while we're over here desiring the world in our own way he desires to be with us and then look at verse 6. This is the best news ever. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. What is the world's response when we're wronged? Hurt back. Plan out revenge. When, when someone cheats on you, break off the relationship. Run away. Go do something else. But isn't it great that our God is not that way? He has every reason to break relationship with us. But it says he gives what? More grace. It means he's already given us grace. We've already tasted it. He's going to give us more. This is totally opposite of the way the world thinks. God's response is not to abandon us when we run after the wrong thing. His response is more grace. More grace. And he's jealous over us. This language of jealousy. We think of jealousy, we think of sin, right? If I'm jealous for something somebody has, that's a sin. But this is the jealousy of a husband for his bride. A husband for his wife. 
my wife, the right response between my wife and me is to have eyes for each other and each other only. If her eyes go elsewhere, if my eyes go elsewhere, jealousy is justified. And that's what God's doing here. He is jealously yearning and wanting you. And he wants you back. And that sin or whatever it is, is there. He wants that back. The personalness of this, that God is jealous for our hearts, ought to be enough to steer us from our wandering eye. But that's even more amazing as he gives us even more than that in his grace. God's grace is the only thing that can rescue us. Grace is greater and more powerful than sin. So we're faced with a choice. Will we love ourselves so much that we pull away from God, or will we love God so much that we'll pull away from self? Are we going to draw near to him, or are we going to draw near to ourselves? There is no neutral ground. So we must acknowledge our guilt. First thing we must do, we acknowledge that I am the problem that we are our own problem. We admit that this has affected not only our relationship with God, but our relationship with each other. And then we plead with God for more grace and praise be to God, he gives it. See, the gospel is this. There is greater grace in God than there is sin in me. Where grace abounded, or sorry, where sin abounded, grace superabounded in Christ. God will give it to us. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. We just need to rise up in it. I want to lead you, leave you with uh, Charles Wesley hymn, O Jesus, full of pardoning grace. This is what he said in it. O Jesus, full of pardoning grace, more full of grace than I of sin. Yet once again I seek thy face, open thine arms and take me in, and freely my backslidings heal, and love the faithless sinner still. You know, this, this, this sermon this week, like I said, it, it worked on me. 